Good morning, everyone. I hope you've been already encouraged today. I know I have. Uh, we are setting aside time on Sunday morning to worship the Lord. And we've been reminded already in the songs we've sung that we worship the King of all creation, who is building his church on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And this Savior, Jesus Christ, is a personal Savior. He's the rock in which we find shelter from our sin, from our shame, and from the wrath of judgment to come. It is Christ alone that we look to today. It is he alone that we worship. And so I hope that you've been encouraged already to fix your gaze on Jesus Christ, our King, the foundation of the church, and the Savior of all who look to him in faith. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll begin our time in the Word together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance we have to assemble in various homes this morning, to be together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to worship you and to open your word, to be taught. I pray, God, that your spirit would be at work today. Preach through me. Use me, Lord. Use my words. Use this message. Use the word that you inspired, that you have preserved. Use your word to have its intended effect upon your people. Lord, we confess our need for your continued grace today. We need your grace, not only in salvation, um, but also as we continue to grow in our faith. We need strength. We need a renewed mind. We need a tender heart. We need a desire and a resolve to obey. We know that all these things are the work of your spirit in us. So God, do your work. We pray, we plead that you would for the glory of your name. We pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to James chapter 5. We're going to continue our series through James. Uh, as you're turning there, I want to greet those of you who are watching uh, at one of our Sunday fellowships. We have a group of people here who you guys can't see, <clears throat> but it's been great to worship together with others. And I know that there's people at the Millers and the Parkins house. There's people at Michael and Jacob's house. There's people at the Huffman's home today, people at uh, Carrie and Tally's house, a group of us here so hello to all of you, and also greetings to those of you watching at home this morning. James chapter 5, I want to throw out just a couple names to you before we jump into the text. And to some of those of you who are younger, maybe some of the kids, you won't recognize all these names, but some of you who are a little older, they'll probably ring a bell. And I want you to think about what all three of these names have in common. The first name is one of our former presidents, Bill Clinton, the politician. The second name would be Bernie Madoff, who is a famous businessman involved in the financial world. The third name would be a athlete celebrity, Lance Armstrong. So Bill Clinton, Bernie Madoff, Lance Armstrong, what do these three men have in common? What is it that comes to mind when you think of them? Does it make you think of truthfulness, of integrity, of honesty? Probably not. If you're familiar with those names, that's not what comes to mind. Bill Clinton lied to the nation, which is not that uncommon for politicians, but more importantly, he lied to a federal grand jury. Bernie Madoff lied to nearly 5,000 investors, and his fraud was estimated to be $64.8 billion. That's billion with a B. Lance Armstrong lied to his sports governing body about the use of performance-enhancing drugs in his Tour de France victories. These men, because of those acts, are rightly thought of by many as deceivers, as liars, as untrustworthy, because they lied about sex and money and success, the three functional gods of our society. But the truth is that these men are really not that unique. Deceit 
is common to our sin nature. Nobody has to learn how to lie. It comes naturally to all of us. And lying is both accepted and even expected in our culture. And the church is not immune to this. All of us are tempted at times to be less than truthful, to be evasive, to be manipulative, to be dishonest. And so our text this morning, which we're about to read, is not addressed just to politicians or just to businessmen or just to athletes. It's addressed to brothers. Let's read together in James 5, verse 12. James writes, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. These words in our text today continue an emphasis that's found in every chapter of James's book. It's an emphasis on speech, an emphasis on our words and the ethical expectations for those who have faith in Christ. In chapter one, we saw that our words are to be marked by restraint and self-control. Chapter one, verse 26, talks about the importance of bridling our tongue. Chapter two, verse 12, reminds us that our words are to show love and impartiality. We're not to speak evil against people or judge others. Our words are to be used in chapter 3, verses 2 through 12. Our words are to be used with great care, lest they cause destruction. That's probably the most expansive teaching on the tongue anywhere in Scripture, James 3, 2 through 12. In chapter 4, we find that our words are to demonstrate humility and grace in verse 11. He speaks about how we should use our words in terms of not judging other people. And now in chapter 5, James tells us that our words must communicate with integrity, with integrity. Our our text is short this morning, and it really has three parts. We'll walk through those together. First of all, a prohibition, what we should not do. Secondly, there is a positive command, what we should do. And then third, James gives us the reason why it is so important to obey these commands. So let's walk through these three components of our text this morning. First of all, the prohibition is that there should be no deceitful oaths. That's the prohibition, no deceitful oaths. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. That's the prohibition. He says, don't do that. The command here to not swear is to not take an oath. An oath is a promise. It's maybe not a word you you and I use in everyday conversation. We don't use the word oath. But an oath is simply a promise with a guarantee. So when James refers to swearing here, do not swear, he's not referring to coarse language or vulgar language. That's not what he has in mind. You can make a case against that kind of speech from other passages, um, like Ephesians 4 and 5, but that's, that's not what this text is about. This is not about profanity or cursing, as you might think of it. James instead here is addressing a couple different errors, I think. One is, is warning us against swearing a foolish or a rash vow not making a promise in the heat of a moment that later you might regret, that might be impossible to keep. We know the tragic story of Jephthah in the book of Judges and what happened to him. Biblically, according to the Old Testament law, if you swear an oath, you are bound to keep it. Numbers chapter 30 verse 2 says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. 
We should be cautious about swearing oaths, making promises, because God holds us accountable to keep our word. He keeps his promises, and so he demands that we keep ours as well. But I think James likely has another issue that's more prominent in his mind. And this other issue would have been a big problem in his day. And this problem was the sinful practice of trying to deceive people, uh, literally tricking them into believing false statements or commitments by swearing some sort of oath. I think this is what James had in mind because Jesus speaks to this same issue with similar language. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. This is a little bit longer text, and I'd like you to follow along with me as I read. Um, I want you to see this because there's, there's a lot of overlap, I think, between Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and the words of his half-brother James here in James chapter 5. If you've been with us in our study through James, you've probably heard us point out multiple times that there's a lot of parallels between this epistle, the letter that James writes, and the Sermon on the Mount. So having already read James's warning, his instruction in chapter 5, verse 12, let's listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, starting in verse 33. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil." This portion from Christ's Sermon on the Mount is so similar in its language and in its structure to our passage here in James, and I think it gives us the key to interpreting it rightly. Swearing by God and not following through would be taking the Lord's name in vain. That'd be a breaking of one of the Ten Commandments, a breaking of the law. It's a serious thing. So what the Pharisees in Jesus's day would often do is swear by things other than the name of the Lord. So that if they needed to break their promise down the road, they wouldn't technically be breaking the letter of the law. So this is kind of like a little kid saying something with his fingers crossed behind his back. Flip over to Matthew chapter 23. Just a few pages over if you're still in Matthew 5 there. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus really holds their, their feet to the fire on this practice. Matthew 23, starting in verse 16, says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say... If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see, Jesus is exposing the fact that the Pharisees had missed the point of the law. I think that James wants to make sure that we, as his readers, don't miss the point. The point is this do not make oaths 
that you do not intend to keep. Do not deceive people by making promises that have technicalities so that you can get out of it, you know, some sort of escape clause. I think that's the point that James is trying to get across. We shouldn't have to resort to these oaths. We, we definitely shouldn't try to deceive people by swearing by something we feel to be lesser so that we can get out of it later if we need to. But notice how James starts this verse off back in James chapter 5, verse 12. He says, but above all, but above all. That's how he introduces this command. Why does he say that? Is James indicating that this command is more important than all the other commands in the book? Or is this just style points or something? Is he speaking in hyperbole? At first glance, it can almost seem out of place, doesn't it? As you read through this passage, just to back up and look at the context here, James has been talking about suffering with patience and and the call to wait on the Lord, anticipating his righteous judgment on the last day. So what does this have to do with oaths? What does this have to do with not swearing an oath? Well, I think that this command makes sense when you keep in mind that the focus of this chapter, starting all the way back in verse 1, is that the reality of Christ's return should affect how we live now. The reality of Christ's return has ethical implications for us. So it might seem like overstating it to, to you and me to say, above all, but perhaps we've underestimated the importance of integrity and the importance of truthfulness before God. God makes clear in his word what he thinks about dishonesty. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22, it says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. If lying doesn't seem like a big deal to you, then consider this. Consider that Satan is a liar that he is the father of lies. And when we lie, we are following him. We are mimicking him and we are siding with him. Instead of being conformed to the image of Christ and reflecting Christ, we're imitating the enemy when we lie, when we deceive, when we break our word. John 8, verse 44, Jesus says to these religious hypocrites, these scribes and Pharisees, he says, you are of your father, the devil, And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, listen to this, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. I love how Alistair Begg puts it. He says, when Satan lies, he speaks his native language. And when we lie, We line up beneath his banner. So it is clear that integrity and honesty is essential for those who claim to believe in and to follow Jesus Christ. A question may arise for some as we read through this text. Okay, so what does this have to do with oaths that are common in our society? Does this mean that Christians shouldn't take an oath in the court of law? Does it mean that that a Christian shouldn't lay his hand on the Bible and be sworn into office as a politician? Does it mean that we should never sign any contracts or even make wedding vows? Is that that how we should apply this verse? Well, no, I don't think that's what James intends. It's not what God intends. First of all, because I think we've shown from the context, especially looking at the teaching of Christ in Matthew, that James here is intending to speak against dishonesty and deceit, using oaths to earn trust in order to gain an advantage. 
But secondly, I think if we zoom out, we can consider this. Consider the fact that God the Father swears an oath to affirm the truthfulness of his words. God the Father makes a promise, swears an oath, in order to highlight his commitment to keep his covenant. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. These are beautiful words and powerful words that undergird our very faith. The author of Hebrews writes, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God himself guarantees his covenant promise with an oath, swearing by himself. That's the significance in Genesis when God the Father manifests his presence going between the two pieces of the sacrifice that's been lined up. God is swearing by himself, guaranteeing his promise. And this covenant promise, the promise of God to bless Abraham and to make a great nation of him and to bless all the world through Abraham and his descendants. This is the key feature of the Old Testament story. And this is a central part of God's plan to bring salvation to the world, to the Gentiles. This oath, this promise gloriously displays God's grace. It shows us his eternal commitment to his saving purposes and it demonstrates his faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness to that promise and other promises. That's the foundation for our hope. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying, that we hold fast to this hope set before us. We have strong encouragement because of this. So I find it unlikely that James would command us to not do something, to not make serious promises at times and obligate ourselves to those commitments. Because in doing those, when we keep those promises, we're reflecting the character of God. In addition, we can look at other examples in Scripture and see that godly men like the Apostle Paul at times made oaths and kept their vows. In Acts chapter 18, verse 18, we see the Apostle Paul himself under an oath and, and fulfilling his vow. We see the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 through 6, beholding a holy angel who swears an oath. And he's not doing anything wrong in that case. So I think it's not necessary to conclude from this text that marriage vows or taking an oath in court or, or swearing an, um, allegiance as you enter into the military or, or an oath in a political context. I don't think that those things are wrong. Um, this verse is not necessarily teaching that Christians should refrain from those things. The point, again, is this, that we must not swear deceitfully or take oaths foolishly because we are bound to keep and do all that we promise to do. So this is the simple prohibition, prohibition not to swear an oath. But then James gives us the positive command. Secondly, the positive command. Again, back in our text in James 5, 12, he says, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
to put it another way, say what you mean and mean what you say. That's the simple instruction that James gives us. We should speak truthfully at all times with no need for an oath to validate our word. God desires that you and I be the kind of people who don't have to swear an oath or make a promise in order to be taken seriously because people know that we always tell the truth. If you have to promise in order to get somebody to believe what you say, then you're implying that your other statements are not as trustworthy. We shouldn't have to do that. We should mean what we say and say what we mean. So let's get very practical here. Let me just speak practically here. Don't be that businessman who makes a verbal agreement, a handshake deal, in order to close the deal, but then later you back out and point out that there was no binding agreement because there's no signatures, there's nothing on paper. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is a matter of personal integrity. Let me speak to parents for a moment. Don't be that parent who promises your kids something just to get them to be quiet and leave you alone for a few minutes. Don't be that parent who threatens to discipline your kid Little Billy, I'm telling you, if you do this, there's going to be consequences, but then you never follow through. Don't be that parent who says yes or no, but then when your kid badgers you, you eventually change your mind. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is a matter of integrity before God. Don't be that boyfriend or girlfriend who makes empty promises in order to keep the momentary romance going. Don't be that church member who says, yeah, I'll pray for you, and then never does. Don't be that neighbor who says, yeah, I'll help you with that this weekend, and then always finds a reason to back out and flake out. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. While Satan is the father of lies, the one true God, the God that we serve, is a God who always keeps his promises. He speaks in honesty and integrity. He is faithful. Revelation 19 describes Jesus Christ as the one whose name is faithful and true. And our speech, our character, our life should reflect his character. James not only gives us the prohibition not to swear any oaths foolishly or deceitfully, but he also gives this command. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But then finally, he gives us the motivation for obedience. He gives us the motivation Look at the, the final part of this verse. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? Here's the reason. So that you may not fall under condemnation. The reason that we must obey these commands is because judgment is coming. And this, again, ties this in with the theme of this chapter, the return of Christ and the implications of that for us. So you may not take integrity seriously. You may not take you know, stretching the truth or exaggeration or backing out of a promise, all that seriously, but God does. Regardless of how big a deal you think your yes or no is, God has a perfect standard. Those who have no integrity, those who deceive others, those who write checks they can't cash and keep their fingers crossed behind their back, James says that such people will fall under condemnation. What does this word condemnation mean? It means a guilty verdict. It means that the gavel will fall on judgment day and such people will be held fully accountable. You might ask the question, is this something that believers can fall under? Because Romans 8.1 says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how do we reconcile this? 
Again, the words of Jesus are helpful here. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Again, Jesus speaking, um, rebuking the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good, good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. The words that we speak will be evidence on the table, on the day of judgment. And those who are not truly born again, despite what they may profess on the outside, they will be proven on that day to be enemies of God and guilty of condemnation based on their deeds. You can tell a tree by its fruit. Mark chapter 7, verse 21 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Our deeds, including the things that we say, they reveal the state of our hearts. James explained this in detail back in chapter two, that faith without works, a faith that is merely a verbal profession that bears no fruit, that kind of faith is dead and it cannot save you. And there will be condemnation on the final day for those who live a life of rebellion against God, who refuse to walk in integrity and in faithfulness and truthfulness. So the point here in this text is simple. It's a short verse, uh, a short passage this morning, and a simple point. Genuine faith should produce truthful speech. That's the main point. It doesn't mean that everyone who tells the truth has genuine faith, but everyone who has genuine faith will be characterized by truth-telling instead of deceit. It doesn't mean every Christian is perfect, but true believers will be characterized by integrity, by honesty, faithfulness, and truthfulness. So that's the point this morning. Genuine faith is evidenced and expressed in truthfulness. So I want to kind of zoom out for a minute and back up from this text and just consider the broader teaching of Scripture, sort of rabbit trail for a moment, and think just a little bit more about what it means to tell the truth. How does telling the truth reveal genuine faith? We've sort of made that assertion, but how does that flesh itself out? Well, telling the truth evidences our faith in two ways. Two ways. First of all, telling the truth demonstrates trust in God's goodness. You may not have thought of it that way, but that's reality. Telling the truth demonstrates trust in God's goodness. This becomes pretty clear when we ask the question, why do we lie anyway? What is it that is being demonstrated when we don't tell the truth? Well, in that moment, our hearts are not trusting God. So lying a sin of the tongue, the mouth, of the lips, is really a heart issue. It's a lack of faith and a display of unbelief. Lying reveals that we don't believe God will protect us, that God will provide for us, that God can satisfy us, or that God has redeemed us. Let me give you some examples. Lying can demonstrate fear. Fear. Consider the Old Testament story of Abraham. He tells a famous lie about his wife, Sarah, saying that she's his sister. Why? He was afraid for his life, that he would be killed 
and that she would be taken. So he lied. He refused to tell the truth. Genesis 12 and 20 record two different occasions where Abraham's faith faltered and his fear prompted him to lie, to not tell the truth. We have the New Testament example in Matthew 26 of Peter, one of the closest disciples to Jesus. And what happened when Jesus is under arrest and Peter is in the courtyard three different times, he denies that he knows Jesus Christ, an outright lie. Why? He was afraid. He was afraid. Fear can push us to lie. That fear betrays a weak faith, a weak faith, perhaps even the absence of faith. What about greed? Greed can be another thing that prompts people to lie. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we have the story of Elisha's servant, who after Naaman was cleansed of his leprosy, Naaman went away, and this servant of Elisha chases him down. Because Naaman had offered Elisha um, rich clothing and, and money, gold and silver, as an expression of his gratitude. And Elisha said, no, I don't need that. So his servant, Gehazi, chased Naaman down and said, hey, the prophet, the man of God changed his mind. We're going to take those things and use them for charity. He lied. Why? Because he was greedy. He wanted those things. He thought it was a stupid idea that Elisha would say no to those, those uh, riches that Naaman was offering. So greed can be a motive for lying. And that greed demonstrates a lack of faith. Gehazi didn't believe that God was enough, that God was able to satisfy, that God would provide for his needs. His greed for the things of this world demonstrated unbelief, a lack of faith. We see it in the New Testament in John 4 that shame can be something that prompts us to lie. Jesus has that well-known conversation with the woman at the well, and he tells her, he says, go call your husband. And what does she say? She says, oh, I have no husband. Jesus sees right through it and says, well, you're kind of speaking the truth that you have no husband because the man you're with is not your husband, and you've had five husbands before him. She was deliberately evasive of the truth. Why? Shame. She was ashamed of her past, ashamed of her sin, and ashamed of her current situation. So she lied to try to cover her shame. When we lie to cover our sin, we're demonstrating that we don't believe God can forgive us or that God's forgiveness is not enough and we're afraid for our reputation. We need other people to approve of us. It's not enough that God forgives us. So lying can be prompted by shame. And shame for the believer, for professing to believe in the gospel, that shame, to be controlled by shame, that's evidencing unbelief. Unbelief in the grace of God and the mercy of God. Lying can also demonstrate pride. We know from Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They sold some property and they gave some of the money to the church, but claimed that they had given the full amount. They wanted the glory and the recognition of other people thinking they were more generous than they really were. And Peter says, you have lied not to man, but to the Holy Spirit. And God took their lives. He killed them in judgment for their deceit, for their lack of integrity. Why did they do that? It was pride, a desire for glory for self, a desire for other people to admire them and appreciate them. Pride can motivate us to lie. And this shows a absence of faith. Genuine faith is humble in nature because it sees the glory of God and values the glory of God above all. But pride is a kind of unbelief. It shows that we're more impressed with ourselves than we are 
with the glory of Christ. And we could go on and on and show other examples, but those are just a few ways that I think that, that it, it helps us understand telling the truth demonstrates trust in God's goodness. When we don't tell the truth, it expresses unbelief. It shows that fear or greed or shame or pride or something else is what's ruling our hearts in that moment, not our faith in Christ. We're not being controlled by faith. We're not living by faith. There's something else in the driver's seat. Lying is always the fruit of something deeper in the heart. If faith is ruling your heart, then you will be free to speak the truth. If you trust that God is as good as he says he is, that he is a forgiver, that he is a provider, that he is our protector, that he is a loving father, then you will not feel the need to lie. Why lie to cover your sin if God forgives? Why lie to ensure your reputation if God loves you and approves of you in Christ? Why lie to protect your job security or financial security in some other sense? Why lie to do that if God provides? Why lie to avoid conflict with people if God is the protector and the healer and the restorer? Telling the truth demonstrates that we trust God is good and it shows that our faith is alive and real and genuine. Secondly, telling the truth also demonstrates a fear of God's judgment. And this again reflects um, James's words from our passage, this warning of condemnation. The person who lies is seeing whatever that immediate pressure is that they're experiencing, whatever that immediate crisis that they think the lie is gonna help them get out of, they're seeing that immediate pressure as a bigger threat and as more significant than the judgment of God. And that's just foolish. When you lie, it means you see that disappointing your parents or getting a lower grade or failing to impress your boss or dealing with some sort of consequence here in this world, you're seeing that all those things are somehow worse than facing God's condemnation. The one who consistently lives in this way is really revealing the state of their heart. There's no faith there because you're seeing God is very, very small. And all of these circumstances is very, very large. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Always, at all times, the heart issue for liars is that they do not fear God. They think they can say what they want and it doesn't matter. They think they can get away with it. Or, on the other hand, they think that their temporal comfort, their temporal safety, their temporal reputation, their momentary success in this world is more important than what will happen at the final judgment. And this, this my friends, is simply foolish. Psalm 15, verses 1 through 2, I believe Carrie read this earlier. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Integrity is an essential expression of genuine faith and it is going to be a mark of those who have a right relationship with God, who have fellowship with him. Taking God seriously, fearing him, trusting him results in obedience and integrity. So let me ask you today, what's the state of your heart? Are you a person of integrity? Not just that other people think you're a person of integrity before God, in the full light of his omniscient light and truth, are you a person 
of integrity? Do you keep your word? Do you say what you mean and mean what you say? If you're a believer, then God calls you to demonstrate your faith by your integrity. Faith and truth go hand in hand. Jesus, we know, is the embodiment of truth, isn't he? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He told Pilate in John 18 that he came to bear witness to the truth. So to receive Jesus as Savior is to commit to following him, to commit to obeying him, to commit to becoming more and more like him. As those who believe in his gospel, we are called to walk in the light. And the good news is this, when we fail, when we fall, when our fear displaces our faith and we distort the truth or we hide the truth and we compromise our integrity, there's a solution. And the solution is not to become a person of integrity. You can tell the truth from this point forward the rest of your life. You can never atone for your dishonesty in the past. You can never atone for your lies. You can never atone for your broken promises. You can never make up for it. But Jesus can. And he has on the cross. It's only through the gospel that our sin can be cleansed. The gospel is the word of truth. And it is good news for liars like us. It is good news for the unfaithful like us. It is good news for the crooked, good news for deceivers. Christ bore our guilt and our shame upon the tree, and he shed his blood to cleanse us from that kind of unrighteousness. What that means is that in the light of God's grace, we can confess our sin. We can take off the fig leaves and stop pretending. We can confess our sin and experience the grace of God, grace that forgives and grace that has the power to change us, to make us different, to make us new, to make us like Jesus Christ. So let's receive this word today. Let's receive this instruction from the book of James with a heart that is quick to confess sin, a heart that is ready and needy to receive his grace, and a heart that is eager to obey, to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, for how you convict us of sin. It's impossible, God, for us to read this and not be reminded of times when we've been less than truthful, when we've been evasive, when we've broken promises, when we've deceived others. Lord, there is none of us who can stand and say that I'm not guilty of any of this. God, we're thankful that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to atone for our sins, to pay the penalty, to bear the wrath that we have justly earned. God, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ, the forgiveness that is ours through faith in his finished work on the cross. So Lord, I pray that you would bring us today to a point of confession. If there are those who've been walking in darkness, deceitful, unfaithful, I pray that you'd convict them of sin and bring them to repentance today. And Lord, we pray for an ongoing work of grace in our hearts, that you would change us, that you would break patterns of deceit, that you would help people who feel enslaved to these sins to experience the freedom that comes from walking by faith, walking in the power of your spirit, walking in the light of the gospel. 
I pray that you would bring change, real change, to people who need to experience such change. Lord, we pray this because we desire for you to be glorified. We desire to be like Jesus. We desire to be who you want us to be. We desire to grow and to be sanctified. So Lord, do your work in us. Protect us from relying on our own strength in this endeavor. Keep us always looking to the cross as the solution for our guilt, for past failure, but also as a symbol of hope, reminding us that we're free, we're no longer slaves, and that you who began a good work in us will continue to complete it until the day of Christ. Lord, if there's any listening to this today who have been convinced in their heart that they do not know you, that the pattern of their life does not evidence to any degree genuine faith, I ask God that you would make them aware of their need for Christ, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would convince them of the truthfulness of your gospel, convince them of the power of Christ's death and resurrection, convince them that this is the only way to escape the condemnation and judgment that is going to come. I pray, Lord, that you would save them, that they would cry out for your mercy, that they would cry out in faith and believe in the promise that whoever looks to you will not be ashamed. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. I pray that you would bring around, bring, bring about this kind of change in the heart of lost sinners today. And God, we pray that you'd be glorified by all that's been said. Anything that is true and helpful, I pray that it would remain and that we would respond to it in obedience. And I pray that you would Use this church, Lord, to be salt and light, to proclaim the truth of your gospel in this community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.